Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Episode 345 of The Bowery Boys. LaGuardia's War on the Pushcarts and the Making of Essex Street Market. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And Greg, this is our first post-election podcast, which means finally we can start thinking about other things, including food. Food, glorious food. <laughs> Hot sausages and mustard. <laughs> it may have slipped your mind this year, uh, dear listener, but we are releasing this show on November 13th, 2020, which is less than two weeks away from Thanksgiving. Yes, a very 2020 Thanksgiving, <laughs> uh, but a Thanksgiving nonetheless. And it has us thinking not just about eating, but of course, preparing for the big meal and the, the joys of buying a turkey mm-hmm. or, you know, or a tofurkey. A, a tofurkey or a turducken. And all the fixins, the, the potatoes and gravy. This particular holiday and really any other holiday that involves a fabulous meal requires buying the right ingredients or prepared foods, if that's more you're seeing. And as you know, New York offers many, many options uh, for the discriminating food shopper. There are a range of grocery store options, delivery options, but also farmers markets and indoor markets as well. So today we're going to discuss buying food throughout New York's history. How did residents buy their groceries? Well, just a couple years ago, we did do a whole show on the development of Tribeca and its important role in food wholesaling. But today we wanted to turn our attention to the retail food business and especially food markets and push carts. Yes, food markets have been around since the very earliest days of New Amsterdam. And the city has done various things over the years to regulate these markets, including constructing market halls. And then meanwhile, in the mid-19th century, a new form of independent food seller, the pushcart vendor, brought bargains of all types, edible and Mm non-edible, to neighborhood streets throughout the city. But they packed especially tightly into neighborhoods with the largest immigrant populations. Yes, and, and many shoppers loved this entire setup. But not a certain mayor, Fiorella LaGuardia, Mm-mm. who was elected in 1933 and promised, among other things, to sweep away these, these old-fashioned pushcarts uh, that were packing the streets and instead house some of those vendors in new municipal market buildings. So how did that plan turn out? Well, to find out, uh, we're going to focus our attention today on one of those markets in particular, uh, one that may be familiar to a lot of you, the Essex Street Market on the Lower East Side, which opened in 1940. 
How is this market born out of this famous pushcart tradition that thrived in the, in the Lower East Side? Um, there's certainly a lot here to digest. So grab some bags as we head to the market and witness LaGuardia's war on the pushcarts. So today, we're going to talk about the various ways that people bought food in the city throughout history. But we're specifically going to focus on how they bought that food in you know, outdoor areas, in markets, and uh, later on in push carts. Yes, because both of those traditions, uh, buying on the streets and in market halls, go all the way back, actually, to the beginning, to New Amsterdam. Did they actually have street vendors back then? Like, could you pick up an oily cook from a street vendor um, on the on the road to Peter Stuyvesant's farm? <laughs> yes, Peter Stuyvesant could pick up some oily cooks um, in his cart <laughs> uh, because Greg New Amsterdam ran on oily cooks. Is that a Dunkin' Donut joke you just made? <laughs> it's a bit of a stretch, but you know, I'm I'm going to keep it in. Um, There were indeed outdoor merchants uh, who sold their goods down by Fort Amsterdam at the southern tip of Manhattan. Um, And we talked about them a couple years ago uh, in our Life in New Amsterdam show, which was episode number 272. And did city officials just allow people to sell food wherever they wanted here? Well, in, in 1641, the Dutch authorities established a market day for New Amsterdam with farmers and Native Americans uh, arriving to sell their goods. And it was so popular that the authorities constructed a public market hall in 1656. And then two years later, the settlement erected a meat market next to the fort um, as well. And that, that was called the Broadway Shambles. I want to note that the... that New Amsterdam was already regulating these markets and the vendors, especially the butchers. By the 1680s, under British rule, these markets uh, would be open to shoppers every day of the week. But so we're going to go back and forth between two different concepts here: the, those who sold within markets, mm-hmm. and then of course those individual sellers who sold out on the streets on their own. So could you do that during this period as well? No, actually, um, as I mentioned, you know, the city was very strict about regulations. And for the sake of public health and sanitation, once these markets were in place, the sale of produce and meat was strictly regulated and took place only inside the markets. Street vendors were referred to as hucksters, um, and they were they were outlawed. And that law would stay on the books in New York for more than 150 years until the 1840s. And that's actually a very surprising historical fact to learn. I don't know, like that kind of regulation uh, that early in New York period is is surprising to me. Yeah. I mean, I I actually kind of geeked out on this. I, I couldn't get over the fact that there was so much regulation early on. And then it just sort of like, well, we'll get to it in a second, but it kind of falls apart. But it seems like then that these markets had a monopoly then on selling food to customers. Yeah, in that the food that was being sold and consumed within New Amsterdam and New York was tightly regulated. And that was a good thing. 
But this is incredibly limiting, of course. Uh, if you you know if you needed food at any time of the day, this is you know many many decades before the advent of grocery stores or even bodegas, obviously, to go pick up stuff. Not to mention centuries away from Amazon Fresh or Instacart. You know, <laughs> you had to go on your own to the marketplace, or you had to send somebody in the house to the market to pick up the produce and visit the butcher, and it was a daily or near daily trip, given, you know, the obvious lack of refrigeration. And by the way, this whole system of regulation and marketplaces, it wasn't just happening here in New York, but this was also happening in other growing cities in the US and in established cities, of course, in Europe, like London and Paris. So here in the colonial period, as the city got larger, mm -hmm. uh, I guess they needed to build more markets. They couldn't just have one. Yeah, especially because they had this concept of being able to walk easily, you know, to your neighborhood market. So if your neighborhood didn't have a market yet, the residents could actually get permission to build one themselves um, if they could raise their own funds, which is what the residents of Pearl Street did when they built the fly market at the base of Maiden Lane. Um, at the East River in 1699. And this would continue in other neighborhoods. By the 1720s, the city had five markets. And this system continued throughout the 18th century. What's fascinating is that even through the Revolutionary War years, okay, I mean, a war-torn city, they, they all still had to eat. So these markets were still in operation, mm -hmm. which is pretty remarkable. And, you know, you might have people, uh, sons of the Revolution meetings, and then stopping at the market for some meat. Francis Tavern was right, you know, was right mm -hmm. in the middle of multiple marketplaces. Um, after the revolution, more markets would be added, older ones would be expanded. For example, the fly market grew to be housed in three different buildings, uh, one for fish, one for produce, and one for meats. And I should mention, sadly, that some of these markets also functioned at times as slave markets, including the busy fly market. That market, the fly market, became so run down um, that it was replaced in 1816 by the nearby Fulton Market, which opened in 1822. And at that time then, in the 1820s, mm -hmm. right? So that is a, a pretty monumental decade for New York City and really the beginning of massive growth in the city because of the wealth that would stream in because of the Erie Canal, which opened that decade. Yes, in 1825. Um, and yes, that wealth would stream in. Nicely put. Um, but to illustrate that, by 1820, Manhattan's population was 123,000, okay? By 1830, that would be 202,000. Ten years later, in 1840, 312. And by 1850, 515,000. That is a lot of new mouths to feed and a lot of new markets to build. Quoting from the Encyclopedia of New York City, markets built during the first half of the 19th century included, quote, the Grand Marketplace and the Corlears Hook, Collect, Greenwich, Governor, Washington, Fish, Center, Essex, Franklin, Manhattan, Clinton, Tompkins, Jefferson, Monroe, and Harlem markets. What? That is quite a laundry list of, of markets that just popped up here all of a sudden. And in, in fact, one of those markets you just mentioned is Essex Market, which we're going to be talking about later in the show. Yes, that original Essex Market was established in 1818 and was, was located along Grand Street between Essex and Ludlow Streets. Um, I'm looking at an illustrated map of the city's 
13 markets at this time, including the Essex market, which was one of the smallest as it Mm -hmm. was just located on that one block covered and on the street. So over on the Essex street side, you first encountered the fish sellers, then the produce sellers. um, But most of the strip consisted of the butchers uh, with 18 different stalls for butchers. And when you say like on the street, you mean like really just on the blocks along the streets, right? No, no, no. This market was located on the street. Imagine like a street fair Mm. today. That's how Mm -hmm. the market was just on that block (laughs) of Grand Street. Um, You can even see on this map, like you see where the sidewalks are and then you see the the stalls in the street. So imagine that block Mm -hmm. with a roof over it. And that was your Essex market. So here, the Essex market is a good example of a small neighborhood market, but some are really large, including the Fulton Market, and the largest by the 1830s was the Washington Market. And the Washington Market was enormous, and it had access, of course, to all of the railroads and the ships crossing the Hudson, and it was open for over a century. For more than a century and a half, in fact, because it dates all the way back pre-railroad to 1812, And it would continue to exist in some form until 1967. It was built on Washington, Fulton, and Vesey Streets, where One World Trade Center is today. And it would soon become the largest food market in the country. And that, just to be clear, is an example of a market that would serve retail. Mm -hmm. You could just roll in and buy something, but it was also for wholesalers uh, where people who owned, you know, hotels and companies or whatever could go in and just buy in bulk. Yeah, or distributors of food. That massive wholesale Uh market developed north of that smaller retail one in the second half of the 19th century. That stretched about a dozen blocks north of that original retail market. Today, in fact, there's a Washington Market Park at the northern end of that wholesale market um, at Chambers Street, which is sort of nestled into Manhattan Community College. So we have all of these these markets of a certain size mm-hmm. all over the city right here by the middle of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So then what happens to these markets when the population of New York suddenly explodes with these huge waves of European immigration, which began in the 30s and 40s and 50s here. Well, you know, in short, the city was was up against some really big challenges about how to grow, how to get water, what to do about housing. And one of these challenges was food, how to get enough food, because this regulated system of marketplaces simply was not holding up with the population growth that the city was experiencing because Manhattan's population would more than triple in the second half of the 19th century Mm -hmm. from about 500,000 in 1850 to about 1.85 million people living in Manhattan by 1900. So there would just be so many residents to feed and those tight regulations that I mentioned before were just relaxed or they were abolished and Mm -hmm. food and food distribution and food retailing became a bit more of a free-for-all. So a a wild west for food, Mm -hmm. essentially. So did the city just stop building markets? Like what happened? Pretty much, yeah. The market stopped at about 10th Street, except for the Harlem market. So this actually presented an opportunity, you know, for small independent vendors to sell food. 
in spots that were not being served by the markets. And also to sell food at cut rate prices that were actually lower than what you would find in the markets. And in many cases, you know, these independent sellers were able to buy up um, surplus food that was coming in to the new wholesale markets. To quote from the book Gotham by Mike Wallace and Edwin Burroughs, quote, this non-expansion policy, talking about the fact that the city wasn't building new markets, created a vacuum which thousands of small retailers, chiefly immigrants, rushed to fill. Many started as peddlers. Irish women hawked vegetables from street corner stands. Germans purveyed small manufactured goods. And Italians sold fruit and flowers. And those things that you described would increasingly be sold via push carts, which I'm going to get to in just a second. But what you've described, those aren't farmers. Like earlier in the story, it seemed to me that those were people who brought things to market from their own farms Mm -hmm. uh, or to the butchers from their own farms. Yeah. Farmers now in the late 1800s had another option. They could sell their food that they raised themselves in season at the Gansevoort Farmers Street Market at the intersection of Gansevoort, Washington, and Little West 12th Street, um, today's meatpacking district. Actually, the Gansevoort Farmers Street Market was located um, where the Whitney Museum is located today. Mm. That farmers market opened in 1884, and it would function until the 1920s when this marketplace would be transformed into a meatpacking and meat processing district. But let's back up a bit and actually narrow our story here. Roll the cart back. Roll the cart back, actually. And let's return to the 1880s. That's mm-hmm. when the Gansevoort market was during this decade. Well, it was in this decade that we see a really an increase in a phenomenon known as the push cart, push cart sales, which were a type of individual entrepreneur, usually involving just a single salesperson working on their own, selling mostly raw sometimes occasionally baked food, um, using a hand-drawn cart, and sometimes even a horse-drawn cart. And you're talking about the 1880s, right in the middle of this huge increase in immigration, specifically Eastern European and Jewish immigration. Right. And many of uh, these new immigrants brought with them the tradition of pushcart sales, Back in their former countries, most of these people could not afford or rent their own storefronts. And in fact, in many cases, they weren't even allowed to own storefronts due to the anti-Semitism that they experienced in those places. But here in New York, these populations lived in dense tenement neighborhoods, the largest being here in the Lower East Side. And thus, they could make a living operating a pushcart. And these pushcarts created a sort of portable outdoor market that provided inexpensive food that often catered to the unique ethnic styles and dietary restrictions of the people who lived here. And their customers would be people who lived and worked along these streets? Yes. Mm -hmm. Where their carts were located, which is interesting if you think about the Lower East Side. People were working long hours. Perhaps they didn't have time to get to one of these markets. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe they had really limited access to kitchens. 
Well, and one of these benefits of the peddlers is they could often stay there the whole night. They even had lanterns and even later electric lights attached to their push carts. They offered a real convenience and thus you could find them all over in nearly every working class neighborhood in New York. And here in the Lower East Side, it essentially became a unofficial stationary market along the streets. The first documented cases, the ones that popped up in the newspapers that we were able to find, appeared in 1886 with four regular push carts lined along Hester Street. But soon, most of the streets of the Lower East Side were lined with peddlers of all types selling all sorts of things. So food mostly, because that's what we're focusing on. But you could also buy like old clothing, needles and thread, small appliances even. That's a lot to push around, if you think about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was it was this even legal? Were these licensed vendors? So yes and no. Or, or I should say the trade was actually legal by this point, the late 19th century. Uh, you would need a license eventually, but there would actually be a larger number of unlicensed push carts because, of course, you'd need a bit of you know investment beforehand to get a license, but a lot of people didn't even have that. And, of course, there was a rule on the books that peddlers could only park in one place for about 30 minutes, and then you would need to move on, right? But that was never, of course, enforced. I mean, how could you? That seems really impractical, and plus, you'd spend so much time trying to get a good spot, and then what, you'd have to move a half an hour later? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a doable idea in any way. So I'm just trying to visualize this. You've got, (laughs) on these streets, you've got uh, stores already, and then there's a little bit of sidewalk, and then you have the push carts, which might be on the sidewalk, but many were in the streets themselves, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, and required to keep moving every 30 minutes or so. I can imagine that there are just a lot of shopping options here. Uh, You probably wouldn't even need to go to one of those municipal markets. I mean, it's for many people, that's true. I mean, you could buy anything here in the streets of the Lower East Side. Produce, fish, cheese, pickles, chestnuts, uh, candy. I mean, you name it. Uh, You're making me hungry. <laughs> but unlike the markets, these, of course, were naturally extremely unregulated. And you also have to kind of compare the work of the pushcart operator with that of other street professions like newsies or boot blacks. You know, essentially early in the morning, you had to fight for an ideal spot on an ideal street. It could be very brutal work, but you did have a sense of independence if you are a pushcart operator compared to, you know, your neighbors and other family members who worked in sweatshops. But you were also subject to terrible work conditions, rain, sleet, snow, and of course, like a street system itself that could be, you know, very corrupt. So on on the one hand, it sounds like complete chaos, unregulated chaos, right? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it sounds like it's providing a real service to the neighborhood. Um, It's providing employment. It's also providing affordable shopping options for food. But also, if there's this corruption, I mean, did the city think that they needed to get involved? Did they try to get involved? Uh, They certainly did. They made some efforts. Even here into the early 20th century, even with more 
a defined marketplace areas in the city. You know, as the city developed their own markets in the early 20th century under bridges and vacant lots and things like that, the street pushcart peddler thrived. In fact, they were so ubiquitous on the streets of the Lower East Side that they were even seen as part of the unique character of New York City. One writer in 1930 even said, quote, the pushcart markets are as characteristic a part of the New York pageant as skyscrapers. So by 1930, when he said that in 1930, pushcarts are still really a thing in these streets. I mean, the city has changed yeah. quite a bit by, by now, thinking about, you know, automobiles and such. Um, so there's more that they're fighting with in the streets. But by 1930, obviously, we're also entering into the Great Depression. And, mm-hmm. you know, pushcarts are also then Im- are also offering employment or uh, income to their vendors and also still providing discounted goods and, and food to the populations that they served. No, I mean, they were very vital to people who had less money, obviously. I would even say that one of the iconic images of the Great Depression is that of a pushcar salesman selling five-cent apples to customers, mm-hmm. right? So if food that was, of course, quite plentiful in New York and, you know, might provide sustenance for a whole day for many people in need. To quote from the author Suzanne Wasserman from the wonderful book Gastropolis, quote, the depression greatly exacerbated the precarious economic conditions. By 1930, 47,000 family members depended on earnings made from pushcarts, which generated 40 to $50 million each year. More than 50% of all pushcarts in the city were to be found on the Lower East Side. But even as they were providing this social good, right, this social benefit, I mean, by 1930, again, just thinking about cars and such and the traffic, it just seems like these pushcarts were hindering sanitation, just getting and traffic and getting in the way. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's actually a little up for debate, which I find interesting because, you know, it's not like a lot of these Lower East Side streets, for instance, were major thoroughfares. You know, it would be a little different if it was on Broadway or even, you know, on Delancey. Because we're talking about like Orchard Street and Hester Street. Yes, Orchard and Hester and all of the sort of smaller streets of the Lower East Side. But people are raising these concerns, and I think what we see here during this period is some anti-immigrant sentiment in this, quote, cleanup of peddlers on the street. You know, these were like generations of immigrant business people with businesses that weren't, you know, organized or necessarily attractive to some people. You know, these weren't like well-dressed peddlers, and the food they were selling was often ethnic food, you know, or in other words, fast food. But on the other hand, by this point, you know, you had many generations of people who were, had been operating pushcarts and visitors from other neighborhoods who had, say, grown up in the Lower East Side and returned. Well, they actually found a bit of nostalgia in the image of the pushcart. But developers and merchants saw this, this thriving component of immigrant life here in the Lower East Side as actually a deterrent of growth in the city. And so all those points were were really excuses that the city was using to to sell its campaign to get rid of these pushcarts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 
in that respect, though, it is a little ironic to me that the man who finally got the push carts off the street was himself the son of immigrants. The mayor of New York elected in 1933, Fiorella LaGuardia. Now, LaGuardia was of Italian descent. He was born in Greenwich Village in 1882. As a politician, he worked his way through state and federal government. Tom, he was actually the U.S. representative at two different times, of course, of two very big districts here in Manhattan. One, which included the Lower East Side, and another, which included another major immigrant neighborhood, East Harlem. And both of those neighborhoods were very well served, by the way, by pushcarts. Absolutely. But as we mentioned in our recent two-part series on uh, Mayor LaGuardia and Robert Moses and the New Deal, Mm -hmm. LaGuardia came into office with some really big ideas about how to clean up the city and also get it back to work. Yeah, he had very big ideas and very big promises. For as a representative, he was very aware, of course, of the peddler's markets that were in his districts, and he was actually strongly against them, but not against the ethnic nature of the pushcart. In fact, what he wanted to do is he wanted pushcart sellers to succeed, but via access to indoor facilities. To quote again from Suzanne Wasserman, but from a different source, a 1988 article, quote, LaGuardia's opposition to the peddlers became an obsession. He believed that his willpower alone could transform peddlers into merchants. But LaGuardia, it wasn't just pushcarts. LaGuardia was actually against all kinds of unregulated, unlicensed outdoor sellers, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, he wanted to, he wanted the streets cleared of all forms of sales that could be considered undignified or lewd. Almost single-handedly, LaGuardia eliminated organ grinders uh, from the Italian quarters of the city in the 1930s by just essentially canceling all licenses from organ grinders. Wait, organ grinders like guys or gals sitting around cranking out tunes on on a little mechanical musical device with like monkeys yes with monkeys you're, you're talking monkeys <laughs> yes musicians often like set up in the street with dancing mo- monkeys to make a little extra money uh, laguardia had a particular hatred of these as they were often associated with italian stereotypes oh. so he got them off the streets but he also hated flower vendors And at a public hearing in 1938, he even attacked the good humor man. (laughs) Talk about lacking good humor. Um, (laughs) Indeed. You're talking about he he got rid of Mr. Softy, basically. The ice cream. Yeah, the ice cream man. The ice cream truck. He said, quote, good humor will simply have to adjust itself to doing business under the conditions demanded by a city of seven million people. You, speaking to the good humor man, I literally there was a good humor man there. You can adjust yourself by putting up attractive little stores. Talk so about this no was fun. You know who would have been doomed? The naked cowboy. Oh, no. LaGuardia would have hated, hated the naked cowboy. Well, anyway. Elmo, so th- Wonder so- Woman. They'd all be like... <laughs> So swept off the streets of Times Square. They'd be driven out of Times Square. Well, so this was obviously a very profound mission for him. And so push carts were next. From the New York Times in 1938, the headline, LaGuardia Renews War on Push Carts, quote, declaring that push cart peddlers are a menace to traffic 
health and sanitation, Mayor LaGuardia yesterday appeared to civic organizations to join in a drive to eliminate them from the streets. And he would make good on his promise to get those push carts off the street with a creation of new indoor markets that would start opening here in the late 1930s. But how would those new municipal markets work out for these pushcart peddlers? We'll head to the market right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So Tom, LaGuardia had a vision to get the push carts off the street. Now, mm-hmm. what are the details of this big plan? Well, we're focused here on the retail food markets, you know, but his vision also included, we should note, 
cleaning up the wholesale food distribution system in the city as well, because that was kind of antiquated. Also, there was rampant corruption as well. So he would use New Deal resources to construct major new market facilities all around the city that focused on wholesaling. But here we're focused on his plans for cleaning up the retail outdoor pushcart markets, um, Mm -hmm. which he was also blaming them for price gouging by the vendors, and even worse, of selling off old or spoiled food at inflated prices. His deputy commissioner of the Department of Markets, a man named Michael Fiaschetti, wrote, quote, It is my belief that ultimately the open-air markets will be supplanted by a system of enclosed markets scattered throughout the city, changing the pushcart peddler of today into the small merchant of tomorrow. And this is something I alluded to earlier, but it's this idea of granting them some sort of upward mobility, Right. In, in yeah. terms of just their social status, but like in their sort of opportunities. Yes. And so kind of everybody wins. It's good for the customer. It's good for the vendor. And meanwhile, the city then is also in some ways returning to its history of being in the market business. Mm-hmm. So what was the plan to construct those markets? Well, LaGuardia was looking first to construct these markets in parts of the city that he considered to have the largest pushcart, quote, problem. And in those spots, they would construct indoor markets and then close down the outdoor pushcart markets, moving some of those licensed vendors into the new building, while at the same time also cutting back on the number of total licenses that the city was granting in general to the vendors. I mean, is that necessarily fair then to all the pushcart operators? Because it doesn't sound like it's including everyone. No. Um, well, it's certainly not including the unlicensed vendors. But I don't think the city was really terribly concerned about you know the well-being no. of unlicensed vendors. Um, but it's true that some of the licensed ones simply would not be able to make the move. There wouldn't be enough space and there were fewer permits. So where did LaGuardia start then? I mean, there's a lot of places to really begin this experiment. Uh, where does he, be- where does he uh, plant the first market? Well, in August of 1935, the mayor broke ground on the very first of these new municipal markets, the New Park Avenue Market, which stretched from 111th to 116th along Park Avenue. The New York Times reported on August 25th, quote, As an effort to solve the perennial pushcart problem, the new Park Avenue market for which the mayor broke ground last week is the most recent and outstanding example. It represents an effort to deal with a small vendor of fruits, vegetables, and perishable foods so that he may be well-pleased and so that the public may buy his wares under sanitary conditions. And when did you say the Park Avenue market opened? It opened on May 4th, 1936. And it included five modern buildings uh, where there had just, you know, before been the kind of maze of uh, pushcarts. And it was officially opened, of course, by the mayor. Um, And within months, the mayor and his markets commissioner, William Fellows Morgan Jr., were back in the newspaper announcing plans for additional markets to be constructed. On September 16th, 1936, the headline in the Times, East Side to Get New City Market. The city will build a new public market on the Lower East Side on Essex Street between Broome and Stanton Streets, William Fellows Morgan Jr., Commissioner of Markets, announced yesterday. 
It will be constructed on city-owned land now held by the Board of Transportation. A retail section to be housed in four buildings will provide 533 stands. When the new market is complete, these stands will be turned over to the merchants who now conduct their business from push carts in the markets along Orchard Street, Rivington Street, East Stanton Street, East Houston Street, and Grand Street. Well, I guess needless to say that Park Avenue Market was a success because you just said, what, 533 stalls, four different buildings? I mean, that's an upgrade. Clearly, yeah, they were happy with the results, even if, by the way, when the Essex Market would open, it would be slightly less, I think 475. But still, you know, the Park Avenue Market had only been open for a couple of months and the city was already claiming victory. The article continued, quote, construction of the East Side Market is in line with the market department's policy of doing away with pushcart markets wherever possible and housing the merchants in public market stalls. The recently opened Harlem Market is the latest example of the working out of this program. And they claim that the residents benefited because the, the vendors could sell food, often surplus food that was bought cheaply from the wholesale markets, at lower prices than they could at grocery stores, which were now operating throughout the city because these market vendors had much, much lower overhead. And these corner grocers had been popping up for decades here, but this now seemed like a more cost-effective option for these pushcart sellers as opposed to trying to invest in a grocery store. And they didn't stop, by the way, with the Essex Street Market because three days later, on September 18th, 1936, the commissioner announced plans for an additional four municipal markets in Manhattan that would have space, you know, for for hundreds of additional merchants. Not all of those particular markets would end up getting built, but you get the idea. The city was now Mm -hmm. really embracing the idea of these municipal markets. But the largest of these markets would be right here in the Lower East Side, the Essex Street Market. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder, did they know that these pushcart operators would want to do this? I mean, how did they how did they know that this was an attractive option for them? Well, they knew that they were about to get swept off the streets, first of all. So they, so they had no choice. <laughs> they could read the writing <laughs> yeah. in the streets okay, uh, or yeah. on the sidewalks. But in this article about, about these four new markets that the city's rolling out, the commissioner announced that the new Essex Street Market, which had just been announced three days before had already received 275 applications for stalls, um, including their $15 deposits. So now we're almost hinting at an opposite problem that could be happening here, which is what happened if it became too popular, mm-hmm. right? Because it was a it's a building. It's a limited amount of space. Yeah. The Essex Street Market would receive thousands of applications, leaving obviously many without a stall and without a place to sell their wares. This shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, where there were once thousands of push carts in this neighborhood, mm-hmm. now there would be stalls for 475. And the city was, you know, was also dramatically reducing the number of licenses to vendors during the same period. Mm-hmm. They would end up issuing only about a sixth of the number that they had issued before this whole cleanup campaign started. And actually, for those who managed to hold on to a permit, who did not manage to get a stall, okay, they could still sell from their carts, but not within 500 feet of one of these municipal markets. 
What had previously been on this land? Well, there had been uh, tenements and apartment buildings that the city had actually acquired and demolished about 10 years previous to this uh, for the construction of the subway, the 6th Avenue IND Delancey Street Station. Greg, we know that F-stop today, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Delancey Street, you know, (laughs) transfer here for the JMZ. But if you think about the F platform at that stop, you know, get off there at Delancey, head upstairs. And if you're on the east side of Essex Street, you basically come out, you know, if you're on the north side of Delancey, you come out alongside what would be the market buildings. So if they announce the creation of the Essex market, when did it actually open? It would take a few years and about $525,000 to construct And it would be the fourth municipal market to be opened by the city when it opened in 1940. Um, It would follow, you know, obviously the Park Avenue. Then the First Avenue market would open at 10th Street in late 1938, followed by the 13th Avenue market in Brooklyn, which is at 13th Avenue and 39th Street, just south of Greenwood Cemetery, which opened in 1939. And then the Essex Street market would open on January 9th, 1940, And six additional municipal markets would follow it, most of which would open within one or two years of the opening of the Essex Street Market. And I assume there was a big splashy opening with uh, LaGuardia (laughs) on hand here. Actually, it seems like it sounds like it was a pretty chilly, um, nondescript and even kind of harumph of a ceremony. Um, Evidently, Mm. pretty, pretty short. Um, He addressed the crowd quickly, perhaps triumphantly. Um, Or maybe it sounds a little bit annoyed because the the Daily News reported the next day about how, you know, as you mentioned, the the, the mayor just didn't want to hear any sentimental reaction to the disappearance of these pushcarts. He said, quote, the old pushcarts are antiquated, unsanitary and simply cannot remain on the streets of New York where traffic is so heavy. And then later, more than thirty five hundred people stood shivering in the cold as the mayor spoke from a small stand on the north end of the market. So, yeah, it doesn't really seem like a fun speech, but uh, (laughs) he got the job done. He got the market opened. Well, as we roll into the, say, 1950s here, there are a couple interesting forces at work that quickly change the nature of the Essex Street Market. One for, for good and another one that's rather troubling. What should we start with? Tom, <laughs> uh, let's start with the good one. I guess it's yes. been it's been a rough week. <laughs> well, so there's an interesting turnover which is occurring here in um in, or in just in immigrant neighborhoods like the Lower East Side in the mid 20th century. You have older Eastern European and Italian residents are moving out of these areas, you know, into the four other boroughs and beyond. But then you have new immigrants and population groups that are coming in to take their place. For instance, you have more African-Americans moving in to the Lower East Side. And you also have new immigrants from Puerto Rico. And when does this demographic change take place? Well, I mean, there, there, of course, were many Puerto Ricans coming to New York for many decades, but it was really after World War II um, that large numbers of Puerto Ricans came to New York seeking work. And, you know, by this time, you had the convenience of air travel in the late 1940s. And so people could come here in larger numbers, thus transforming many neighborhoods all throughout the city. But in particular, 
here in the Lower East Side, or as it would be called by many, Loisida. So then did Puerto Rican merchants make their way into the Essex Street Market? Uh, Yeah, I mean, there would, of course, be Puerto Rican street vendors. Anyone who has ever enjoyed a shaved ice Mm. knows this to be true. I've had one actually at Essex and Delancey in front of the old market. (laughs) Um, But uh, Essex Market would soon see stalls here owned by Puerto Rican merchants uh, selling food related to Puerto Rican cuisine. I also want to take the time, by the way, to mention that far up on the island of Manhattan in East Harlem at that old Park Avenue retail market, you know, the one that opened in 1936, mm-hmm. it too would see a very similar transformation with brand new immigrant groups coming into that neighborhood. Puerto Rican, but you also had Dominican, Cuban, uh, Mexican, and that market is still there today. A lot of them closed, right? There's still four. We have Essex. And this one, the Park Avenue. As well as the Arthur Avenue Market and the Moore Street Market, but the other six have since closed. Yeah, but people may know the Park Avenue Market um, by the name La Marqueta. Okay, so you've described the the good change mm-hmm. that was um, occurring here at the Essex Market. The positive influence, yes. Yes, uh-huh. what what was the um, the more troubling change taking place? Well, that came due to a couple big shifts in American life generally. Okay, so in 1930, out in the borough of Queens, in a massive warehouse in Jamaica, Queens, that warehouse was transformed into a King Cullen store, otherwise known as America's first supermarket. Not just a market, but a supermarket, okay? So this built upon the idea of the corner grocer, but was also brought in the ideas of a self-service food shop. All sorts of foods, from from breads uh, to dairy, everything. And this is considered the very first supermarket in America. And that was 1930 in Queens. Uh Uh-huh. And of course these supermarkets would only become more popular and actually get even more convenient with Mm -hmm. further advances in food distribution and trucking and refrigeration and freezing. Yeah, I mean, they became the standard for most Americans of where you got your food, right? Food was becoming more prepackaged and preserved, so people didn't actually have to go to the store as frequently as they once did. Yeah, you could just have TV dinners every night. Yep. Jello pudding. <laughs> Swanson pot pies. <laughs> but back to, to Essex Market, I mean, it was sort of like a, a supermarket. You could buy anything you needed. It was one-stop shopping, but the problem that it had is that it was in this city building. It was a municipal building designed to look as unoffensive as possible and bland, very unpleasant. Supermarkets, meanwhile, had big windows. They had, you know, almost obnoxiously bright lights and, you know, full color circulars. You know, supermarkets were were a party, right? In addition, Essex was facing the same problems as other mom and pop stores during this time. It was really hard to compete with supermarkets' large inventories and cheaper prices. And and this part of the story is just depressingly familiar. Yeah. The small the small merchants are just up against these behemoths. Yeah, and then there's like even an extra added level that, you know, the neighborhood itself, the Lower East Side was having many problems, like many areas of New York by the 1960s, 
you know, so it was having these problems. Those were being reflected, you know, in the aisles of these city markets. And so, sadly, there was an initial plan in 1964 to close all of the markets. Hmm. This made the front page of the New York Times in the fall of that year. Uh, quoting the market commissioner, Albert Pacetta, quote, they have outlived their usefulness as far as the original purpose is concerned. Very few of the original pushcart peddlers remain as tenants, unquote. Well, perhaps not the original merchants, but there were still merchants in there, right? I mean, yeah. they wouldn't be too thrilled about this. And these markets had only been open for like 20 or 25 years. Yeah, there there were still people whose livelihoods were contained in these buildings. And, you know, frankly, Tom, if you want my hot take here. Please. <laughs> um, the city declaring the problem solved in that quote. Like, we have no further need to operate an affordable market for working class people with a different ethnic makeup than that in which it had begun is another kind of subtext. Uh, in the same article, in fact, he calls the markets, quote, nothing but a sloppy looking bunch of supermarkets, unquote. It sounds like he wasn't a fan. Uh, absolutely not. But there was still strong support in the neighborhood, strong pushback. And then by 1966, it was agreed that the tenants would collectively lease the building back from the city via the Essex Street Market Merchants Association. And this model would actually be used for all the remaining markets in the city. Now, throughout this period, many of these stalls, like the kind of components of the stalls, the type of things you would find, would actually change. It would reflect, you know, let's just say the some rather sometimes even eccentric and unique characteristics of some of the sellers. Um, you would find, you know, whole stalls with Catholic religious items. Sometimes you would even find used furniture and things like that, just resembling somewhat of a flea market, really. But even with these new uh, kind of new additions, still one of the most interesting places to see both older and newer cultures in the neighborhood mixed together. In fact, in some vendor classifieds that I found, I was digging into the classifieds as one does. of the New York Daily News, uh, they kept referring to it as the Essex Street Flea Market. Oh, interesting. And even with a special ambiance here in the 1970s, I mean, the Essex Street Market was still serving its primary role as well of providing the neighborhood with affordable food. Yeah, people still shopped here every day. Now, there was a very brief drama, Tom, in 1979 involving a Cleveland investor who wanted to sweep in here, uh, move into these buildings, and then turn Essex Market into an amusement arcade with billiard tables, pinball machines, and newfangled video games. <laughs> Space Invaders. And Frogger. What? <laughs> and Frogger. 1979, yeah. Wow. pre Pac-Man. What, yes. um, what happened? Did he stay in Cleveland? He did because it was really shut down by the city. A council person was quoted as saying such a plan would, quote, bring in a bunch of rowdies. <laughs> like only a Donkey Kong machine can. <laughs> well, but by 1986, moving the story forward, there were only 60 vendors here at Essex Market. And a shiny new renovation that was done to the place really failed to spark much energy. Finally, in 1995, 
operation of Essex Market was then handed back to the city, or in this case, handed to the New York City Economic Development Corporation, which was a nonprofit built to revitalize uh, certain areas of the city and uh, to bring in private partners. And how did they then plan to to reorganize this market, which was sprawling still right over several different buildings? Yeah. So what they did is they took all of the remaining vendors and they just put them in the northern buildings. So those buildings that are north of Delancey Street. Mm-hmm. Now, many listeners know that we both lived on the Lower East Side. In mm-hmm. fact, now we're entering our era of the story <laughs> here. And so the, the, I remember those southern buildings as really almost always being vacant, right? Yeah, just kind of waiting for something to happen. Yeah. And do you remember what was right next to those those buildings? There was the old Olympia Diner. Oh, yeah. Remember sure. the Olympia Diner on the corner? So those were market buildings that had been emptied. Emptied, completely emptied, right. But even in those just northern quarters here, even this change was not really enough. And so even more vendors closed. Then another twist to this story, and that is, of course, the Lower East Side changes in another way here in the late 90s and the early 2000s. You know, it becomes more expensive, It is a rapidly gentrifying area with trendy new apartment towers being constructed nearby. In a normal situation, this change would have spelled complete doom for the vendors of Essex Market, who were still, you know, fighting against the tide. There were so many forces against them by this point. And by apartment towers, you mean like the the blue condo that was just a block blue, away yeah. the big blue thing mm-hmm. and the rivington <laughs> hotel that just opened this is all in the first yeah this is that was the blue condo is in from 2007 so right so the neighborhood is making another kind of major change in september of 2013 a new development was announced for the footprint of that old south essex market area right in fact the whole block of Essex and Delancey and Norfolk and Broome. And in fact, many blocks stretching along Delancey um, would be part of this brand new development. It would be called Essex Crossing, uh, a set of new developments which would include a tower at this corner on this block. And a part of the deal with the city is that it would not only be a home for all of those existing vendors who are over there on Essex Street Market, you know, north of here, but it would also have much, much more room to expand, okay? So it could include many more new vendors and local businesses, not to mention, of course, that the rest of the building includes like a a new movie theater Mm -hmm. and, of course, lots of new housing. So that was or is called the Essex Crossing Project. And And for a number of years, people were talking about that project even while the Essex market was still operating on the north side of Delancey. And in fact, yeah. for many years, I just wanted to throw out there that the Essex market was like my primary grocery store. I mean, that's where I went to get my groceries, you know, from the fresh produce stands to the bread shop, to the cheese shop, to the coffee dealer. I mean, I remember there being some apprehension about this new plan and about whether or not the, you know, the small vendors would be able to make that jump over to that new, the new fancier uh, market on the south side. 
Um, but they, in fact, did, or at least, you know, many of them made the move from old to new, including some of the originals, many places that had been in those markets for many, many years. And it's a really diverse group of of vendors. When you see them, especially in this new space, you know, you're really struck by the variety of types of food that are still being sold in mm-hmm. this marketplace. Well, it's amazing because of the new kind of open air design of this. I mean, the original Essex market had it had high ceilings, but nothing compared to what this current market has. And what you're able to kind of take in collectively all the different places and it really gives you like a slice of the world all of this is you know very much arrayed in a food hall style uh in fact there are actually uh, several more prepared food places uh amongst these different businesses now in addition then downstairs uh from essex market there's another another hall called Market Line. And it's essentially local businesses with many famous names in the neighborhood, but did not generally originate from Essex Market. So you have like outposts of very famous restaurants here, like Schaller and Weber's, Namwa Tea Parlor, Veselka, the Donut Plant, and on and on. There's like a ton of them down there. And unlike the original Essex Street Market that this one's replacing, there's fortunately a lot of seating um, to eat all of this because one problem that the old space definitely had was a lack of seating to enjoy the food that you could buy in there. So finally, they've, they've definitely decided to fix that problem. Yeah. Now, of course, at this moment, a lot of that seating is is closed, but they still have an outdoor seating section, a long broom, so you can just get your uh, food from from the market and sit out there and enjoy it, or just take it home with you. And what's interesting is, you know, recording this in the infamous year of 2020, and even with lockdowns, COVID lockdowns, this place has been open the whole time. Because uh, the market's considered an essential business. We've got to eat, after all. Which brings us back to Thanksgiving. And Greg, maybe I will bump into you at the Essex Market shopping for some fixins. <laughs> for more on this, including great photos and illustrations of markets and push carts through the ages, please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. A heartfelt thank you to all of those who support the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon.com. That's Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys, where for just a small contribution each month, you are helping us keep the show in operation. And from time to time, we give you extra bonus audio. Yes, we just recorded our most recent Bowery Boys movie club um, in which we dive into the backstory and filming locations of the 1980s classic When Harry Met Sally, um, Mm. which has a very notable scene that also takes place on the Lower East Side. Yeah, um, it's a it's a cat's deli, which, of course, for years would have had push carts, you know, all around the deli on the streets. We also want to give a big thank you to the Essex Market um, for helping us out, for supporting the show and helping us with our research. They provided us, among other things, with some great uh, research that had been done for them by Turnstile Studios. So thank you to Essex Market. 
And one more thing before we go, Greg, because you have me in a very 90s state of mind. Well, Mm -hmm. I wanted to announce an upcoming virtual program that is being produced by the New York Historical Society. They are presenting Big Quiz 90s Thing next Wednesday on November 18th, 2020 from 8 to 10 p.m. This is a trivia party, folks, online. They write, quote, remember Beavis and Butthead, Ace of Base, and hanging out with friends. Time travel back to the 90s with the big quiz thing, America's premier providers of virtual live trivia entertainment and the New York Historical Society. Quizmaster Noah Tarno will try to trip you and your team up with a whole range of rapid fire audio and video puzzles. Will he succeed? As if. <laughs> Join the fun. Book your ticket at nyhistory.org. I just have one thing to say to that, Tom, and that is. Hit me, baby, one more time. (laughs) Uh, On that note, thank you very much for listening. You know, you could buy from the Spice Girls at the Essex Market back in the day. (laughs) I think there are a lot of Spice Girls at Essex Market, actually. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.